welcome again to GBC. Thank you guys a ton for leading us, and i um, glad to see everybody here. Anybody get stuck in any sort of traffic because of the, uh, the marathon? Raise your hands. No? And why were you all so late? I'm just teasing, just teasing. <laughs> you weren't actually, I'm just, just messing with you. Um, hey, it's great to see y'all. Thank you for being here. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 58. This is an incredible passage, and I, f- I felt really insecure after the first service because I don't think my sermon uh, does this passage justice. I'm going to tell you that right up front. But, it, but here's the deal. There's no sermon in the world that can do this passage justice. Honestly, it, it's that good. And so um, hopefully we can get something out of this, but, but this is a passage to meditate on throughout the course of the week and, and to memorize and, and just to, to marinate over. So um, let me pray, and we will we will jump in. Lord, thank you so much for your presence in this place. Thanks, God, for your presence in our lives. God, I, I pray that we would understand what a privilege that is based on this text today. Help us to uh, understand that your nearness is, is an undeserved privilege, uh, that it, it was something that, that took incredible sacrifice for you to enable. And I pray, God, that we would be more grateful for your gospel Uh, I pray that we would understand your gospel more than we ever have before. Father, for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And and for those who are brand new and maybe don't even know Christ, help them to be overwhelmed by the the goodness of this gospel, Lord. Uh, We love you so much, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed Apollo 11 on the surface of the moon. It it was, as you guys have heard this, one small step for man and one giant step for mankind. And it sparked, they tell me, I was only one years old at the time, not that old. They tell me it sparked an, an incredible like uprising of patriotism in the United States because, because we had landed on the moon. And, and some people got so caught up in that patriotism. Good, red-blooded Americans from an agricultural and mechanical college in the plains of the great state of Texas decided they were going to, to take, take this wonderful thing, this lunar landing, and they were going to go one step further. They... They promised the world that they were going to build a spacecraft that was going to land on the surface of the sun. <laughs> surface of the sun, that's right. And so, obviously, there, there were skeptics coming out of the woodwork, probably a bunch of people from Austin, a bunch of skeptics, right? A bunch of naysayers. And they, they said, you can't land a spacecraft on the sun. You can't walk on the surface of the sun. You know how hot it is in the great state of Texas. It'll incinerate you. There, there's no way you can do that. Those people from the Agriculture and Mechanical College there in the plains of Texas, they were undeterred, not by the skeptics. No, sir. They, they came up with a plan. They, they rallied. They put their heads together, the greatest minds down there, that campus, and they said, no, no, we've got, to, we've got it figured out. We're going to land, land this spaceship at night. It's a really dumb joke. <laughs> Super dumb. I tell an Aggie joke about every four years, just so y'all know, like in case like you're like, oh, there he goes again. I don't go again, okay? <laughs> the reason I give that introduction 
is not because it's a good joke. It's because it brings up the subject of incompatibility. Humans are incapable of walking on the surface of the sun. It's, it's just not going to happen. Incompatibility. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 53, all about incompatibility. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. A lot going on here, but at its essence, at its core, this passage is about incompatibility becoming compatibility. And that's what verses 50 through 53 is all about. Incompatibility being made compatible. When, when the text says in verse 50, flesh and blood, flesh and blood meant then exactly what it means now. Exactly what it means now. He's talking about our mortal bodies. He's talking about our dying bodies, our, our wrecked by sin bodies simply cannot exist. They are incompatible with the presence of God. God is holy. God is perfect. We are sinners. We, we deserve judgment. And, and so there is an issue here. There is an incompatibility. That's what this text is fundamentally about. And, and most people get that. Most people think, well, our bodies are wrecked by sin. We can't stand in God's presence. That's why our bodies die. But, but then they sort of make this hybrid understanding of heaven. It's, it's a real strange thing what we do. It, basically, we say our bodies must die because of sin, and that's true. And then they say God saves our souls. God saves our souls, but our, our bodies are buried because our bodies were wrecked by sin. But God saved by the blood of Christ, and this is all true, our souls. But then what they do is they understand heaven as like an eternal disembodied state. Now, disembodied isn't a word that we use a lot, and so I'm going to break it down. Dis and embodied. Like, we don't have a body. That, that's all it means. Heaven, then, people think, is a disembodied state. You end up thinking that, that heaven is, is like Daniel Ernest, like looking like a slightly built cherub, playing a harp, wearing baby blue tights, like frittering around from cloud to cloud. And if you look at this guy, you're going to see right through him. You're going to see right through all of us because we're, we're some sort of spirits. And that's kind of fun to think about. But I, I don't know that it's right. I, I really don't. Like, think about this. If God created the physical world and he declared that the physical world is good, wouldn't redemption include the physical? Don't we need redemption of the physical? If, if the fall impacted the physical and God is all about redemption, if, if the blood of Christ is shed, is it just said, shed for our souls? Or did God so love what? The world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't redemption, certainly it includes our souls. But isn't it a little bit broader in God's mind than just our souls? Wouldn't redemption include the physical... Wouldn't there be a new heavens and a new earth and new bodies 
to enjoy that earth? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be more tangible and physical than people frittering from cloud to cloud? Think about that. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. God's solution is both the living dying, that's us, and those already dead will be changed. It's not just that the dead who have bodies that are decomposing or, or that bodies that are degenerate, those bodies aren't going to be raised. We're all going to be changed. The living dying, that's us, and those already dead, we're, we're all getting new bodies. And, and those bodies are going to go from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to immortal, and, and so the incompatible will be made compatible with God. And that's part of God's redemption. Now, when does that happen? Verse 52 tells us when it's going to happen. It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, the twinkling of an eye and the last trumpet is really speaking of the triumph of the ages. It's, it's, it's the parousia. It's the second coming of Christ. And we don't talk about that a lot. We talk about the first coming of Christ, and we celebrate that, but then we, we start talking about Christ coming again one day, and it kind of spooks us, doesn't it? Just a little bit. It spooks me. But the reality is, God makes promises upon the return of Christ that are wonderful, that, that we don't know much about, we don't talk much about, and we, we lose out on some really neat things to celebrate, y'all. The fact is, our bodies right now are decaying. All of them. Like every one of us. When you were born, you were born to die. God's going to fix that. He's going to fix that. And it will happen at the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And God in the Old Testament uses trumpets to call his people either to battle or to worship. And it, it, it talks about the last trumpet heralding the return of Christ. And it's the triumph of the ages. It's, it's all this salvation that we, we talk about. And we, we like to think that it's already happened. And, and it has in some ways already happened. But, but in other ways, it has not yet already happened. There are promises that are part of Christ's redemption that are yet to be fulfilled. And this is one of them. New heaven, new earth, new bodies. That is yet to come, and we wait for that. We long for that. We long for that because we desperately need that. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, if you, you hadn't broken this up, if I hadn't broken this up, I'll, I'll take the blame here, you didn't realize that verse 53 and 54 are almost the exact same thing, just restated. It, it st talks about the perishable putting on the imperishable, the mortal putting on immortality, and then it says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the immortal puts on immortality. And, and Paul's getting like this running start. And I, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but like as a preacher, if I say, Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins. Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins. I'm reiterating something that I am passionate about, and I'm reiterating it so that you will pay attention. That's exactly what's happening in verse 53 and verse 54. He, he says it the first time in verse 53, 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass. And he quotes two Old Testament passages. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's a quotation of Isaiah 25, verse 8. And it is speaking in Isaiah of the great day of God's salvation. It's, it's the culmination of all of God's salvation intent. It's, it's like the final act of God's great salvation. That's, that's Isaiah. Paul quotes it very much in context. Verse 55 is different. Verse 55 is a little bit different. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's a quotation of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14. Now, I preached Hosea 13 26 months ago. So y'all should remember <laughs> what that passage is all about, right? 26 months ago. I mean, that's not that long, right? I'm actually joking around. When I saw that this was Hosea 13 quotation, I was like, wait a second. Have I preached Hosea? And I went back and I have, and it was 26 months ago. And, but I was like, I'm still always surprised that Hosea is 14 chapters long, by the way. Like, it seems shorter. But Hosea 13, just because I suspect you, like me, had forgotten about that sermon 26 months ago, just to give you what's going on there, it's a threat. It's a threat. It's a threat of God's coming judgment against Israel's sins. This is, this is not a happy text. It it's not a happy time in Israel. In fact, if, if you look at Hosea carefully, you will see that God gives Israel a couple of nicknames. Nicknames like Jezreel. That's not good. Nicknames like No Mercy. Like when you're calling your people No Mercy, the relationship is strained. The, the other one, and this is, this is really rough, God gives the nickname, not my people, to Israel. Can you imagine naming your child, not my kid? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really rough. In, in fact, right after in Hosea 13, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Right after that, he says, and this is God speaking, compassion is hidden from my eyes. Like, can you imagine being Israel, and God saying, compassion is hidden from my eyes, and you are not my people. This, this is a really heavy text, and the reason I tell you all that is this. Here, it's totally flipped on its head. Here, it's flipped, and Paul is quoting it in the most encouraging context. And so the question that we should be asking is, is how did we take a, a text that was all about condemnation and flip it into a text that is all about celebration? Because that's what Paul is doing here. Like this, this is a building, it's a, a crescendoing passage. Like th this, is, this is not just a statement of fact. This is a celebration of truth. But how did he go from condemnation to celebration. Verse 
56 and verse 57 is going to tell us exactly how that happened. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before I even explain this, I just want to note how incredibly significant these two verses are. Anyone here who fears death should memorize this passage. Maybe verses 54 through 57, but they're short. And if you fear death, or or if, if you fear death for your loved ones, this is a passage not just to learn about and then put aside. It's, it's a passage to meditate on. It's a passage to find great comfort and even joy within. If you fear death, this passage is for you. If you doubt your salvation, if you're one of those people who in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2, when Paul wonders if the Corinthians have believed in vain, And you're like, that could be me. And you didn't listen to anything else because you're so scared that you're not part of God's elect. These are verses you should memorize. So if you fear death or you fear your own salvation, these verses are for you. What do do they mean? Why am I so insistent about these verses? text says the sting of death is sin. That's the first thing it says. The sting of death is sin. Sin is what makes death happen. Sin is what makes death hurt. The sting of death is sin. That's all he means. It it doesn't have to be complicated. He's he's actually saying something very clear. It's, It's pretty simple. I'm not saying it's insignificant. I'm just saying it's pretty simple. Sin is what makes death happen. The wage of sin is death. Sin is what makes death happen. It's also what makes death hurt. It's what makes death hurt. And then it goes on to say, the power of sin is the law. Now, a lot of people will say, well, the law must be bad. That's not what the text is saying. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul loves the law of God. The power of sin is the law. It doesn't mean that the law is bad. The law defines sin. You wouldn't know all that sin is unless you had the law to tell you what sin is. The law defines sin and the law decrees that those who are guilty or who sin are not only guilty, this is where it gets hard, they're condemnable. Remember when we talked about incompatibility? This is it. Like if you're a sinner, you're not only guilty of sin, you're deserving of condemnation. God is holy and perfect and he cannot tolerate sin. He just can't. And the law exposes us as lawbreakers and therefore declares us to be condemnable. So what the text is telling us, the sting of sin, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. I'm so glad that verse 57 is there. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he means by that is Jesus fulfilled the law. The power of sin is the law, but Jesus comes and he fulfills the law. Jesus comes and he lives an impeccable life. 
He, he adheres to the law perfectly. We don't. You might be better than the person sitting next to you. That doesn't matter. You're not perfect, and God is perfect, and God is just. And we've got a problem, but Jesus came to fix the problem. He fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law perfectly. And then he was crucified as a sinner. And you're like, wait a second, that doesn't seem fair. Fair is what you pay the bus driver, y'all. He lived an impeccable life, a perfect life. He died a sinner's death, not for his sins, for your sins, for my sins, for our sins. That's that's the gospel that we hope in. Like 2,000 years, people have placed their faith in that truth. And they get to go to heaven. And it it's not fair. It's undeserved salvation. It's, it's unmerited favor. That's, that's what the word grace means. Jesus took our sins. He bore our sins. He paid for our sins. And so sin doesn't hurt us. Sin doesn't hurt us anymore because Jesus took the hurt. And therefore death doesn't ultimately hurt us. And that doesn't mean that when someone dies, you can't grieve. I'm not talking about that hurt. I'm talking about condemnation. Like the, the separation type of death. That, that doesn't exist anymore. Because Jesus bore our sins. And that is most significant. I want to now finish with verse 58. Therefore... My beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There are a few things to note on this. First of all, this is the first positive command in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First positive command in 1 Corinthians. Now, all I mean by that is in verse 33, it says, don't be deceived not really telling us to do much other than stop being dumb. Verse 34 says, wake up from your drunken stupor. It's a synonym for don't be dumb. <laughs> stop going on sinning. Don't be dumb. This is the first like, okay, what, what do we do? What do we do? It's the first imperative, first positive imperative in this whole chapter. Well, before we start looking at at the command, the imperative, let's note that verse 58 starts with therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore. I can't get past like my nerdy seminary humor. Therefore logically tethers what has been stated before with what is coming. That's, that's what the word therefore linguistically means. It's, they're connected. So, so don't take 58 separately from everything else that we've talked about today. Because 58 comes as a conclusion, a logical conclusion, a tethered imperative to what comes before, which begs the question, what did come before? Some of you probably tuned out. I get it. I do that sometimes. What came before? Our victory. That's what verses 54 through 57 were all about. Our victory, which has, note the tense of the verbs I use, which has already been secured 
through the finished work of Christ on the cross where he dies for us. His blood is shed for us. It is a finished, completed action. That is the victory that we enjoy, not based in our striving, not based in our trying harder, not based in our doing better, based in what Jesus has already done perfectly on our behalf. Perfectly. That, that's where security is founded. That, that's where we go from, gosh, I hope God loves me, to I know God loves me. He has proven his love. He has completed his love. He has secured his love for me, all in the work of Christ. It, it is the great indexes the, the pointer God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were yet sinners Christ dies for us look if you can't get fired up about that check your pulse check, check your spiritual pulse like that's the deal and to the degree that you are still hanging on to I want to earn God's favor I want to be self-righteous I want to do these things and all sorts of Christians do that you are robbing God of his glory because he sent Jesus to do it, not some of it, but all of it, on your behalf. In light of the victory that has already been secured through Jesus, living an impeccable life and dying a sinner's death so that sinners might be called saints, sons and daughters of God Most High. Therefore, therefore, be steadfast. That's the first part of it. Be steadfast. The word literally means seat or chair or base. My, my favorite breakfast taco in Houston, Texas is Tacos A Go Go. There's, there's one on White Oak. There's one on 34th. They're, they're outstanding breakfast tacos. Bang for your buck. You're not going to beat it. Like big two breakfast tacos will fill a full-grown man up. Sometimes it takes three at other places. They're, they're not expensive. They, they've got great ingredients. Here's the one knock against Tacos A Go-Go, and it doesn't matter which Tacos A Go-Go you go to. It's a lot of goes. <laughs> Their tables are wobbly. Like, they drive me bananas. You put your elbow on this side, and you, like, almost fall over, and, like, they're like, why can't somebody make a table with squared legs? Or maybe that's not the problem. Why can't somebody make a floor that is, that is flush and square and even so that tables aren't constantly wobbling? And look, I've, I've tried folding the napkins and putting them under a leg. Like, none of it works. And you're like, why? That's what this is about. <laughs> Therefore, be steadfast, be stable. Be steady. That's, that's what the word means. Don't be like a table at Tacos A Go Go. They'll drive you bananas. Always wobbling. Spiritually, be steady. Therefore, the next word, be immovable. Immovable is a pretty interesting word. I would say in our culture, immovability has kind of fallen out of vogue. It's fallen out of fashion, hasn't it? Because the reality is, we value flexibility in our thinking, don't we? We want to be nimble because culture is changing all the time. And, and if, if we don't change with culture, we might end up on the wrong side of history. And everyone feels that. Everyone feels that. So we want to be nimble. We, we want to be like, well, what's right? What does culture say is right? I think that's right. And if they say something else is right tomorrow, I'm going to say that. I'm liquid mercury. Nobody's going to pin me down. 
I'm going to be agile in my thinking. I, I think that's a serious problem today. We don't want to end up on the wrong side of history, so we want to keep our options open. It's the opposite of what this word is. Therefore, be immovable. Let me give you a positive spin on immovable. Yeah, I know you're probably like, well, that sounds kind of stubborn. Here's, here's a better thought for it. Convicted. That's what immovable is. You know, a convict can't move, right? They're held in one place. A man or a woman of conviction is held in one place. Here I stand. I can go nowhere else. It's a man of conviction. It's a woman of conviction. That's what we're talking about. Based in the victory that Christ has given us, that is already completed, you stay right there. You don't chase culture. You don't waffle in the wind. You stay convicted. You be a man or a woman of conviction. You be, you be the same person Monday when you walk into the office that you are on Sunday morning when you walk into Grace Bible Church. Just be the same. Don't, don't put on a mask at Grace Bible Church and act like you're more holy than you are. And, and don't try to hide your faith when you go wherever you work tomorrow and the next day. Just be the same. Immovable. A man or woman of conviction. Always abounding in God's work. I, I like this. I've got, I've got a few thoughts on it. And I'm going to kind of ramble a little bit, but, but here we go. Always abounding in God's work. That basically means run to the things of God. Run to the things of God. Like go hard after kingdom pursuits. Don't, don't just dress yourself up and play Christian on Sunday. Live your faith. Run hard to the things of God, Monday through Sunday. I want to give a couple of caveats here. I think you can misapply this. I, I think there's a couple of ways to misapply it. I, th I think one, if, if you have like a junior Messiah complex and you think you're the only person who can do anything in the kingdom of God, you might take on too much and you might get to a place of unhealth. So I, th I think you can overcommit. Let me say this. God is not actually calling you to anything that you cannot do in spiritual health. Okay, it's just not. So, so don't go there. Don't overcommit because you think you're the only person who can do anything in the kingdom of God. Bad. Don't also work and work and work thinking that your striving will earn God's approval because that's legalism. We don't want that. We're not about that here at Grace Bible Church. All of that being said, we're back to Paul saying... Run hard, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And let me, give you, let me give you the other side of this, where I think we can fall into a gutter. Hot take here. You're not going to like it. Some of you aren't. Self-care self -care can be a little bit problematic. Okay? Like, we... we We've got a lot of people talking about self-care these days. Well, just make sure you're taking care of yourself first before you do anything for God. Really? <laughs> we, we are created to glorify God. Not, like, self-care starts with self. That, that should raise a red flag. Again, I don't want you to overcommit. I, like, I'm not, don't. 
Go hard after God. Know that your joy in life, your meaning and purpose in life, based on what Christ has already done, will be found in his kingdom purposes. You exist as a Christian to represent God, to glorify God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and love him forever. That's not bad. It doesn't say anything about self-care. Don't overcommit. I get it. Hopefully you get it. Maybe the text also, when it says always abounding in God's work, maybe it actually means don't get distracted by or addicted to the things of this world and then try to wedge Jesus in. Because that happens a lot. And, and if you're wondering, you know, why it's hard to get excited about Jesus, but you've got all this other stuff that is not really central to the kingdom that you're more committed to, might be something. Always abounding in the work of God. Knowing your labor is not in vain. Paul started this chapter in verse 2 by saying, I hope that you have not believed in vain. And, and that's scary. Because it raises the question, can we believe in something without grounds? That's what in vain means in verse 2. I think he's circling back to that here. Like he, he raised that tension at the beginning of the chapter. He's resolving that tension at the end of the chapter. A labor for the Lord. And that's what we're talking about here. It, it, the text says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. A labor for the Lord that, that bubbles out, like comes out from knowing that Jesus, and here I'm referring to the text we've just come from because there's a therefore. Knowing that Jesus swallowed death. That's super cool. That he took our sin, that he bore our sin. And therefore, the sting of death, he has taken away. Knowing that Jesus has swallowed death, that he has taken the sting of death away, that he has secured not only the salvation of our souls, but by his death, which is already completed, he also promises, and it's a certainty, that one day we will get bodies that are not subject to decay or sin or death or all the stuff that we fear. That one day we get what somehow deep in our souls we've always longed for. Not because we were good, but because Christ was good. That he has secured our souls and the immortality of our resurrected bodies. He has, he has made the incompatible compatible. When we engage in a labor rooted to that gospel, I promise your life will not be lived in vain. And I, there'll be times that you'll be like, this is hard, and people aren't you know, responding the way I, I wish they would when I minister to them. And, and I get that. Trust me, I've had 30 years of that. And that's why this passage is here. Our labor in the Lord rooted to this gospel. It's not in vain. It, it's the thing that you can be certain will not return empty. It will be fruitful. 
Let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that we'd start with belief, that we would believe this, that we would believe in Jesus, that, that we, our hope would be in him. Our, our hope would not be in the things of this world. Our hope would not be even in, in the health of these bodies. Father, I pray that our hope would be in the finished work of Jesus who has saved our souls and, and promised that one day because of this redemption that is already accomplished and applied that we will gain new bodies. I, I pray that that hope would be what we need. And I, I pray that therefore we would be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our work is never in vain. Please, God, I, I pray that we would start there and that we would, that we would end with lives marked by joy-filled, love-based obedience to you. God, give us strength where we are weak. Give us hope when we lose our way. Most of all, give us the ability to glorify you in the lives that you have given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.